remarkable people overcoming remarkable challenges with resilience, dedication, community, and grit. Listen as they share their stories of overcoming adversity. Open your eyes to what is genuinely possible for all of us. Authentic Adversity with host Chris Howe. Welcome back to another episode of the Authentic Adversity podcast. If you like the content, please like, comment, and share. Uh, subscribe to the channel. It helps. Every little bit helps. Um, anyways, today I'm sitting down with a friend of mine um, who, honestly, it seems like he's lived five different lifetimes in one. Um, he's got a great story, uh, always positive, um, just a you know all-around great guy, super interesting story. Um, welcome, Mooch. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Excited to be on. Yeah, man, for sure. I've been looking forward to this one. Um, you know, I always, uh, just in our kind of getting to know each other over the last little while, I, I always really appreciate, um, you know, just the back and forth. You're always super positive. Um, you've always got like good things going on. You seem to be like active doing things that I'm interested in. Um, you know, I, I really like, uh, I really like a lot of what you're doing today. And, um, and your story is just, you know, really kind of awe-inspiring uh, where you've been and, and where you are today. So, you know, I'm, awesome. again, yeah, man, really looking forward to it. So, yeah, man. Um, so just to kick it off, um, I want to talk about like where you're from, uh, what it was like growing up. I know you you had uh, both parents that were educators. You have a twin brother. Um, yeah. Maybe you could talk about like early childhood life for you. Okay. Yeah. So I grew up in uh, Salem, Oregon, out on the West Coast. Um, I have an identical twin brother. My um, biological mom and, and dad weren't married. They were just kind of like dating on and off through high school. So dad was somewhat involved, but it was pretty much single mom. Okay. I come from a really big tight knit Italian family though. So we lived with grandparents, you know, his mom and the grandparents and, right. you know, I don't know if, how much you know about Italian families, but they don't ever want you to leave the house. So, <laughs> or they want everyone to live there. You know, my mom's still, I'm 40. My mom still tries to get me to move home. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we all lived with, you know, we lived with the grandparents. So it was kind of like a big community effort with raising everybody and hanging out. And the benefit to that was pretty much everyone in, in that side of the family was either school teachers or, or, or co you know, sports coaches. Okay, cool. So Jeremy and I, my, that's my brother, we were involved in uh, organized sports from like as soon as we could walk pretty much. Um, and then my biological dad grew up boxing. So he was getting me and Jeremy into boxing. Um, probably not in an organized way. I think <laughs> I heard that like, he put us in a diaper box and we were three and had us punching each other. Right. <laughs> um, so we kind of have, you know, both sides of that spectrum. My, my biological dad's, um, side of his family, they were all adopted. They had a lot of, um, issues with substance abuse and in and out of prison. So my, my mom had us keep that her her last name instead of his okay and hope that uh you know kind of keep us out of trouble then we see how that worked out in the long run <laughs> yeah. but yeah. but at the time uh you know she just wanted to give us a fair shake and give us a good a good chance so right. we grew up uh you know pretty privileged man i mean middle class uh family through educators pretty decent neighborhood um you know went went to i mean i went all the way through graduate school you know so we were pretty educated and Mm -hmm. we, we were pretty lucky with the way the way we were raised we had a, an amazing family man and to this day super supportive anytime mm -hmm. i've been arrested or in trouble you know instead of yelling at me the first thing they did was support us and try and get us out of jail and then they'd yell at me but, sure <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of something that that i think a lot of us do now too as adults right like if my friend's wrong i'm gonna back him in the moment and i'll tell him he's wrong later right. and a lot of that i learned from my family and just kind of how we grew up okay cool so then um if your your family you they were coaches and that sort of thing, uh, then you were big into sports as well. Like teen teen years, where you where you I think you were wrestling, right? 
Yeah, so I mean, through like grade school and stuff, I played everything. You know, okay. played, uh, boys and girls club football and basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of funny about that is, you know, Jeremy and I were wrestling pretty early on. So when we went out for football, they had a lightweight and a heavyweight division. Well, I'm not a very big dude, yeah. but I was used to cutting weight. So I cut weight to weigh in. And so me and my little brother were <laughs> we were on the lightweight division of football, but we were the biggest dudes on the team. Oh, no. So we thought we were great at football. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we get him in junior high school and we just start getting crushed. Right. But um, yeah, once we got into junior high and high school, you know, you kind of have to narrow it down to one or two sports. And so we just wrestled the whole time. Okay. I did get uh, do some boxing and get into some boxing, but I never, um, you know, MMA wasn't really big back then yet. Mm-hmm that it was you know like ufc one was all those ones were just coming out right and there wasn't just wasn't much of an overlap because i do remember me and my brother would talk if i lost a wrestling match i remember my coach going oh but you don't want to you don't want him catching you in the parking lot and i remember getting knocked down in boxing and, and the coach going oh you don't want him to catch you outside and yeah thinking, you know what i mean it was like one of those funny things where it's like i didn't think about putting two and two together ufc like back then was super intimidating to me man like i didn't know anything about jujitsu and i knew there was guys out there breaking each other's arms and right. stuff and it, it wasn't something I wanted to jump into back then. I wish I would have. Um, but, you know, at the time, it just wasn't as popular as it was now. I don't even know if there was a gym around where I was at yet, you know? I mean, that's, yeah, I don't, and UFC looked a lot different then, too, right? Like, it's, oh, yeah, crazy. I mean, it was like, um, yeah, wild, wild. Like, and I have a friend from high school that was never really athletic, and, and right after high school, he found a jiu-jitsu gym in the town we were at. Okay. And he's a black belt now, and he's a professor, and a trainer forever, and you know, it's one of those things where I was like, man, I wish I would have known. Yeah. Um, but you know how that goes, man. Honestly, back then, I was so all over the place. Who knows where my focus would have been? I doubt I would have stuck with it. I was too focused on other things. And yeah. I think like most things, I think I found it at the right time in my life when I was really ready to focus on it and settle in. Okay, cool. Yeah. So teen years, were you, um, so were sports kind of keeping you in check a little bit? Like, were you, were you drinking or partying or anything like that? Or Man, I, I wasn't really partying much. I, I didn't drink a lot. Um. I'm 41 now. I didn't really start partying and drinking until I was about 35. I probably oh, wow. drank a little bit in like late teens, early 20s. Okay. But, um, you know, I was involved in the anti-racist skinhead scene for a super long time. Mm-hmm. And then in the motorcycle club scene. And I always felt like I had to have my wits about me when I was out. So I didn't like like getting sloppy or doing anything that was going to impair how I felt or how I acted in public. Yeah. Uh, as far as keeping out of trouble, probably not. <laughs> yeah. Just because, like I said, we, we joined that. Uh, we got in the skinhead scene at about 15 or 16. Okay. And there was a... Uh, Oregon and Portland specifically, but even Salem, it was a pretty big issue of neo-Nazi skinheads. So we were fighting a lot. Okay. And so it was in and out of jail and, and uh, you know, those guys were coming to my house and there was a bunch of crazy stuff going on at a young age. So we were, we were getting in trouble quite a bit. Right, right. And I think a lot of people don't realize like the difference between like what a true skinhead is, right? Like skinhead right. didn't come like that. The Nazi shit, that's that that was brought in after the fact. It you, True skinhead and yeah, rude boy. Like, yeah, like I mean, it's all about you know a- accepting others and and like the music is from the West Indies. It's like you know it's it's black and whites hanging out together. It's not it's Definitely. not nothing racist about it. Um, and I think skinhead gets a bad a bad label because of the Nazis that kind of you know one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I try to explain it to people. It's essentially similar to punk rock, right? Mm-hmm. Like outcast people that dress that are super into music and fashion and they dress the same. The difference was is because the skinhead look was a little more menacing. Yeah. That, you know, uh, media and politics, once they got big in the media, then politics were using them. And so, you know, a lot of those guys were used as security and enforcers for the for the right and for right wing stuff. And so they were started getting labeled as racist. But initially it was no different than punk rock or any other subculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a couple years older than you and, and same same where I grew up. It was it was a big deal. And it was, uh, you know, it, like there was a lot of 
like bonehead skinheads that were really menacing. And, and then there was a different group of like the rude boys, skinhead, like anti-racist, like sharp skinheads. And, you know, there was always, and people couldn't tell the difference. And so, For sure. and, and both are, were, they were always fighting each other. And, you know, I was kind of, I was kind of in the punk rock hardcore scene at the time. And so I was sort of like in the middle of all of that as well. Um, and it was, man, that's so much different today than it was back then. Oh, I can only imagine. Here's like a, the big difference for me was I didn't know what any of that was, right? And we mm. didn't have the internet. Couldn't just jump online and look right. it up. So I was in a punk rock. My aunt, um, because, you know, single mom, she used to send us with our aunts on the, our aunt in the summer. And my aunt was an art teacher and kind of hippie, but she was really into music. So she would like she would wake me and my brother up to play in Madness okay. or uh, she got moans and the clash. So we started really getting into that music. So I, I started getting into the punk rock stuff. Mm-hmm. And in uh, freshman year of high school, I was wearing a, a dead Kennedy shirt in the back said Nazi punks fuck off. Right. And I walked by these three dudes, these big giant white power skinheads. And dude, man, they looked like they were in their thirties. I swear. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, I, myself, our freshman year, I wrestled at 112 pounds. So I'm a little guy. Right. Um, so they were pushing me around and, and uh, kept calling me a sharp. And I was like, man, I had no idea what a sharp was. So I, oh, had, yeah? like, I asked around a bunch and then I kind of started getting some information. And then uh, Portland, Oregon had like the biggest bookstore in the country. It still might be Powell's books. Okay. And, you know, like I said, you couldn't get on the internet, right? So right. I went to Powell's book and I went to the subculture section. I found a Spirit of 69, Skin okay. of Nation, all these cool books. Yeah. And that's how I got into it is I really had to like do the research and dig it. But it was really because they singled me out first. You know, right. I was like, well, you're going to keep calling me a sharp, then I want to see what it is. And then it really aligned with with how I grew up and my culture. You know, mm-hmm. my, my my family was very anti-racist. Yep. Um, me and my twin brother went to a country high school or junior high for a little bit. And I remember my grandpa sitting me down and he had his black friend come over that he used to coach with mm-hmm. that made sure because we were going to this country place that we weren't going to, you know, believe in racism and follow right. racism. So our family was very, very open to stuff like that. So it just really aligned with my values anyways. Cool. And although, like I said, there were teachers and stuff, we had a pretty working class background. So all of that stuff really just aligned with my beliefs. So I mean, we jumped in head first. Yeah, for sure. So you were you part of a group then? Like yeah, we were in a pretty uh, well known crew on the West Coast called the Rose City Bobber Boys. Okay, uh, they started in '95, and when I first found them, I was like 16, so they wouldn't let us join yet. So we started our own little like sub crew called okay. the Capital City Hooligans, and and we were just all we probably were doing crazier stuff than them because you know how when you're a wannabe, you like you think, oh, this is what the other guys would do, right. and then you look back and you're like, oh, we were nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. um, so we started our own little crew, but then yeah, once I moved to Portland, we all uh it was kind of a traditional gang in the sense where we did jump ins and everything like that. I think okay. the only thing that I would say separated us from like gang culture is that we weren't making money or we weren't doing anything to profit, but we were pretty territorial and, and, you know, right. had a symbol and a name and, you know, yeah. we did a lot of that stuff, but we also had an agenda. Like our goal was to keep the, the, our scene and our, and our city and our area safe from, from racist skinheads. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and, and do you think that, um, were you, were you kind of drawn to the, the kind of like that gang, lifestyle um for the 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 brotherhood and the camaraderie at that point you know it's something i think about because that's that's tough i would say the one thing for me probably is being an identical twin i've always been searching for an identity Mm. of some sort right i think the identity was more important to me than the camaraderie because i had a great family and i had a twin brother or have a twin brother and um I, i never was like in that searching you know it's like uh, I do social work and, and, you know, I've looked into psychology and all this different stuff. And you see a lot of times people say they join again because they, they, you know, missed out on family or yeah. they're looking for a family. I, I'm not that guy. You know, right. I had that. I think to me it was more of our identity, really. Okay. Like I, I, I liked having that sense of belonging, but that representation of something bigger than yourself. Yeah. 
Um, and especially as being a twin at the time, I was trying to do something different than him. He was into country music and wore belt buckles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was working on how to rope things. I mean, he sure. was doing a, he, we went to different high schools, so he went to a kind of a more country school. And, okay. And mine was the bigger city. So we were kind of trying to establish our own identities, too. Okay, which cool. clearly didn't work out. We did the same stuff our whole life. Right. But that was the goal, man. And so I think that might have been the big draw. And then I think, too, whether it was sports or anything, I've always been that guy that wanted it to do the best at it. Like when I played baseball, mm-hmm. I wanted to be in the majors. And when I, you know right. what I mean? I was always one. And so when I, I, you know, joined the skinhead scene, I knew of who the Bobber boys were. And they were really well known for being really tough and hardcore and kind of being the main best gang. So I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, that's where I want to be. And, right. and that's what join the motorcycle world too so i think i just always kind of had that mindset yeah yeah that makes sense and with the twin thing i get that you know trying searching for your own identity and what what kind of makes you stand out right from for the, sure yeah and i think we all go through that as teenagers for sure but then yeah. add being a twin in there it's, <laughs> i think yeah. it just that kind of amplifies. definitely definitely is this around the same time that you're starting to play music and that sort of thing yeah so okay. around the seventh grade my stepdad uh, bought me a guitar mm-hmm gave me some guitar lessons and I was like so amped to be in a band. I think me and some guys got together and jamming before I even knew any chords. I'd like play, right. just, I'd play in bass lines on a guitar. <laughs> yeah. um, and we had in the seventh grade, we had a band called the flying seamen. Okay. And, our, <laughs> and um, it was kind of funny because we you know, we all went to the same school. We're all seventh graders, but the principal at the time, we made her a little demo tape and she let us play at a pep rally. And, you know, we're like punk kids playing punk band stuff. Sure. So, but that, that really like, it, it, you know, it was cool. It inspired us. It showed us that we could like, have an audience and yeah and you know do fun stuff so from then on i was pretty much always in a band no matter what school i went to i kind of would have a group of guys where we played music with and then cool when i moved to portland in early 2000s when we started uh, the escape which was the band that like we actually put out records and had a record deal on tour quite a bit and, right right yeah i've checked out some of the is it uh what is it, rose city hardcore yeah yeah that was our big our full length album yeah yeah i like it it's good and so you were it touring around with yeah, we did about almost four four years on the road. Cool. So, uh, our first, we did an EP on Road and Pop School Records, which was a guys from Toxic Narcotic out of Boston. Mm-hmm. So they were helping us tour a lot, um, and that's we got really close to a lot of Boston bands like the Unseen okay. and even early Dropkick Murphys, and so we're like friends with a lot of those guys from back then. Oh yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, super cool, man. And that's the cool thing about the music scene or any scene now as you're older, right? Is the networking fact and just staying in touch with people. Yeah. Um, and then um. So we did that, and then we put out that one on, on Blackout Records, and then our last one was on TKO Records. And so each one of those mm-hmm. labels put us on tour with bands from the, from their label. So we got to meet a ton of cool people. Like we played CBGBs, um, oh, yeah? we played Gilman, yeah, we played Gilman Street, we played cool. you know Los Angeles, East Los Angeles. We did a couple Warp Tour spots. Um, like I was telling you off air, we did a Canadian tour with a band up there called the Wednesday Night Heroes. That yeah, were, they were relatively big at the time. So man, those shows were great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we I mean we just had a lot of fun. We were you know guys in our early twenties. Most of us were single and we just piled into a van and drove around the country. That's a life, <laughs> and, man. And, yeah. Yeah, times were easier than we could live off $5 a day. You know? Right. Um, but it was amazing. I mean, it, you imagine fresh out of high school, being in a van with other kids your age and just traveling around. It was great. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's awesome. I mean, what an experience, right? Yeah, it was so cool. And like I said, I met people there. I think I, 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 I'm that guy that kind of has a gift of staying in touch with people because I'll reach out. I want to stay in touch. Right. But I, I, I really met some amazing people that are still friends to this day. And cool. to me, that that was probably one of the biggest takeaways, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that like playing in bands and touring together and like getting to play with different different bands every night and you're all collectively doing something, doing the same thing, but you know, you're, you're doing it collectively. And I think that 
kind of um, just like it's hard not to forge friendships through something like that. Definitely. You know what I mean? You go th- and like you said, you're what, like late teens, early 20s, touring around America and Canada. Like, you know, that's those are those are the days like that's amazing. And there was so it was a lot tougher than it probably is now. So, again, like we were talking about earlier, it's pre-internet. So right. like if I wanted a book show in New York, I had to go to Kinko's and make a flyer and get a demo and put a press kit out. So you had a lot of communication with other bands and other areas, right. like writing letters and phone calls. And so you really built, I think, probably more bonds than just getting online and, you know, posting a flyer. And the other big thing yeah. was you had to get on a record label if you wanted your album in record stores or, or, right. or available. And it just posted online like you can now. Mm-hmm. So in order to that you had the tour so it's like it was that catch-22 of uh you know you, you could stay at home and hope you get noticed or you could work really hard and be gone all the time and yeah. you know we weren't we were punk bands it's not like we were great so we just worked really hard yeah and, and, and that's what we got in return is we got these record deals because we were persistent and we were always touring yeah. Rec- the record label said hey we already see you already have a fan base in other states because we were touring so i think that was a really good takeaway too is and, you know, with jujitsu or anything else, but it just really showed that if you want to get there, you got to put in the work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's very cool. And I mean, those those days of like, you know, flyering a city and like just like, you know, yeah. praying that people are going to show to you, you know, it, it's that's a culture that kids out have no idea. They'll never know about anymore. Right. For it's just sure. so, so simple now and so easy. Um, Bro, we traveled with mixtapes like cassette yeah. tapes, you know, different yeah. playlists that we'd make on cassette tapes. And we had. Once MapQuest came out, we'd make a binder of MapQuest, but we had, you know, a bunch of just roadmaps and no one had cell phones. So if you got lost, right. you had to pull over and find a payphone to call a promoter <laughs> and see where you were going. And it was it, it was just such a different time. And, I, and I'm not saying it was a better time, but like we were saying, I think relationships were forged more tightly because you're going through some crazy stuff together. Right. Like Definitely. You're, you're literally navigating the country with other kids. For sure. So you, you definitely build a really cool bond doing stuff like that. I mean, and that's like a lot of things. I'm even with with the combat sports and that sort of thing. You you build a different bond because you're going through those true like hardships and the, the things definitely. that, you know, that require real grit and real persistence yep. and, and that sort of thing. And it's a it's a different bond than just, you know, buddy that I've known for my whole life. Right. It's it's different. Right. Yeah. I mean, experience adversity together, you know, and going through something together really mm-hmm. makes like you said, it creates a better bond, a stronger bond. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a shared experience, but it's like a, it's not definitely necessarily a pleasant experience. So it's memorable, right. you know. Not a lot of people that have done that with you, so that's like it brings it to a different level. Yeah, but and you do it together, you get through it together, and that's that's real special, I think. Definitely, yeah, man. This episode of the Authentic Adversity Podcast is brought to you and sponsored by Another Road Drug and Alcohol Treatment Center. Another Road offers a client-centered recovery program tailored to every individual's circumstances. Their focus is to create a supportive healing environment rather than a rigid, rule-based institution. Their dedicated commitment upholds the individual values respecting each person's desire for recovery. Another Road understands that every individual requires a unique and focused approach to their recovery. Certain modalities of treatment are introduced along with the tools necessary for each client. Located in a rural setting, their addiction treatment center for all genders provides the perfect setting for a transformative recovery experience and sense of belonging. The private residential treatment facility offers an unparalleled program with counselors that have in-depth knowledge based on varying years of experience in addiction. Another Road utilizes unique individual focus plans 
for recovery that address the complexities of drug addiction, alcoholism, and prescription medication misuse. They have a 65% success rate when clients follow their program. I know many people who have completed this program and they have absolutely rave reviews. To learn more, visit anotherroad.ca. So uh, once you're finished touring with the band, where does life go from there? Um, yeah, so the, the, the band broke up 2004-ish or so. And really it kind of got to the point where I'm always, I'm very critical of myself and I'm always in my own head. And man, I started thinking like, we, we were we had some good friends in the scene, but I, do, I was, kept thinking, do people like us just because of who we are, or is our music good? And I was I was just getting really burnt out. Like okay. we were on the road a lot. The we all lived together and toured together since we, we kind of had to share money and everything. And I think I was just really burnt out, and I was ready to kind of step away and take a break. And around this time, I was also kind of taking a step away from the gang too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had um, some pretty big beef with this crew called DMS, and we had beat up Madball when they were in Portland, and so there was. Again, pre-internet, right? Because back then, if you're on tour and you have a beef with someone now, we'll just, they'll just put it out and you're probably going to have a hard time everywhere you go, right? Right, right. But, <laughs> but it wasn't quite the issue yet then. But, you know, we ended up kind of going head to head with a crew that was really, really big and was okay. going to kind of have issues with when touring and, and vice versa. And so it was just, I think it was the right time to kind of step away. Yeah, right, right. So once you're once you're away from from that sort of lifestyle and, and like, where, where do you go from there? Like, do you, are you, do you go straight to the motorcycle world there? I was kind of riding then too, because in the okay. scene we all rode Vespas and right. stuff. And, um, some of the older guys were getting into Harleys, and they would let us ride theirs. And I, man, the minute I rode, when I was hooked, you know. Yeah. I mean, I was with Vespas too; I had a blast. But the minute I felt that power and torque of a real motorcycle, for sure, I, I was definitely hooked. So even in the skinhead scene, we were still riding a little bit towards the end. Okay, um, I was still trying to figure out my life at that point, man. I, mm-hmm. I was, I tried to join the Marine Corps in high school, but because I picked up a felony, I, I couldn't. And around. I remember when I was 25 when we were breaking up and stuff. I tried to rejoin the military because mm-hmm. they had relaxed their standards. But then I had too many tattoos. So I was working on lasering ops and tattoos, and I still couldn't get in. Really? So I tried, I tried that route. Wow. Um, and then I okay, said, okay, this is when I'm going to go back to school. And I think I went to school for two days. And I was like, nope, nope, this isn't for me. And <laughs> yeah. So really, there's a lot of searching, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. You know, okay. I was 25. I just I spent five years touring in a band, and I just you know, didn't have a lot of work history. And right. I just had no idea what I wanted to do yet. Yeah. Um, and that's when I was, I, I really just jumped head first in a the motorcycle stuff. My uh, girlfriend at the time was working at the Harley dealership and there was mm. a guy there from a, cl- a local club called the outsiders. Okay. So that was kind of my connection to, to club world. And, and like I said, with the skinhead stuff, where I went and got all those books, I did the same thing. Like with the biker scene, man, I've read every book about motorcycle clubs and motorcycles and you don't know, like, right, just right. So I was like so immersed in it that I was just almost awestruck when I first met an actual club member. And so I was just so tunnel vision focused on this is what I want to do. Okay. So I spent as much time as I could with this club, the outsiders to, mm-hmm. you know, show them that I'm this tough guy from this tough background. I did everything I could to get in, you know what right. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I learned a ton, man. It was a great experience, but that's really what kind of got uh, my toes wet in that scene and really got me involved in that. Okay. And, and so, um, you know, getting into the, into like kind of club world, um, you, do you find a lot of parallels and, and a lot of the same things that you that you found with the skinhead gang scene and, and that sort of thing? Or is, or is it much more structured? And it's a little different. So, um, you know, our gang was really structured. So that part was okay. pretty close to the same. Just like anything, man, I think life's a learning experience. If you have bad experiences, you learn what what did I like about it? What what didn't I? Right. Yeah. And um, in, our, in our gang for discipline, you didn't get like fined or in trouble. You got beat up. 
Right. So I, I really learned that I didn't want to do that moving forward because it, it interfered with the brotherhood. I don't care what anyone says. I know the old adage of which help each other up and have a beer afterwards. But from my experience, someone always held a grudge. There was some sort of issue, yeah. even if it was deep seated. Okay. Um, and so that when I started hanging out the outsiders, they had a rule that brothers don't hit brothers. And they actually said, hey, there's nothing two brothers can't sit down and talk about. Hmm. Cool. That really resonated with me, man. That was the one thing that really drew me into that scene. And actually, every the clubs I was in after that had that same those same rules. Right. So learning that was huge. Um, you know, some of the, the structure and stuff was pretty close to the same for me. Okay. I would say the one really big kind of paradigm shift was, you know, in, in the skinhead scene, if anyone remotely said something racist, we're fighting. Right. And the biker scene has a lot of uh, older mentalities and old school thinking and yeah. just shock value stuff, too. Right. So coming coming to terms with what I was ex- what I was acceptable, what was acceptable and what wasn't to me. OK, that was probably the hardest challenge of getting involved in that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. It's a yeah, a little bit a little bit challenging coming from that world of the, the anti-racist, to, you know, and right. anything goes kind of thing. Um yeah. And the generation gap too, man, you know, the, the skinhead scene, we're all close to the same age, you know, like right. when I was 19, I kept saying, oh, the, the older guys, the older guys that I looked up to, but looking back, they were like 23 or 24, right. you know, like yeah. no one was that old. And then, you know, being 25 and hanging out with bikers, these guys were all 50 and above. So right. there, there was, I, I've talked about it before on some other shows, but mm-hmm. that was when I really realized that in order to be successful in a real brotherhood, we had to have things in common. Because okay. I like the outsiders. They were great. And I have nothing negative to say about them. But I remember sitting around looking around the clubhouse thinking, man, if it wasn't for this club or Harley's in general, I yeah. don't have anything in common with these guys. Like these aren't guys I would call over to barbecue or go to right. a concert with. Hey, have you heard this new record? And and so that that w- that took me quite a while to understand. Okay. But that was a big thing, too. That ended up being a big takeaway for me as well. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're your club brothers. But outside of that, what do you have? Right. Like. Right. And yeah. then and as you know, going through the club scene after 15 years, I noticed, you know, what chapters was felt the tightest. And, you know, when did I really feel the brotherhood? And it was when we had those shared um, same interests, you know, because that yeah. was the guy like, hey, let's grab a movie or hey, what are you doing for Christmas? Like right. those, those that next level bonding um, where it wasn't just like, oh, we're brothers because we're, we have the same patch and we say we're brothers. Like you actually had to have those real those shared interests. Right. And I think that that, um, I mean, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, the, some of the stuff you're doing right now uh, with the lift train ride movement, um, it sounds like a lot of a lot of those values that you kind of learned, like, hey, what's important to me, you've now kind of sure. brought that over to what you're doing today and, and kind of the uh, the brotherhood and the movement that you've that you've got created there. Um, Definitely. It's something we should all be doing, right? Like in a job or anything, like as we go through life. Uh, shed what we don't like and keep what we like, right? Sure. Like that whole learning of of what's being successful, what makes me feel good, what you know, what makes me happy, and and what isn't, and mm-hmm. doing our doing our best to move forward with the good and leaving the negative behind. And I know it's easier said than done, but I think it's a practice most of us do, whether we realize it or not. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I mean, it, I I think that most most people probably do it unintentionally, but you know, to actually be intentional about it, I think is really important because uh, for sure. You know, in my life, I, I found that too. Like, I, there's there's things that I thought, you know, I thought I liked, I thought I was into, and then I realized five years down the road, this really doesn't serve me, and Definitely. you know, I need to I need to ditch that, and you know, change my change my opinion, change my attitude, uh, moving forward, and and surround myself with, you know, people that are gonna um, that I can grow with, and that I can actually have a bond with, not just people that are, you know, into the same thing. 
You know? Yeah, and I think that's just part of um, you know maturing as an as an adult too. Yeah, because we don't see that when we're younger. You know, there's half the time you're just worried about your your the way you present you know the way you present yourself or the way people look at you or ego and there's just so much other stuff going into it. But I, yeah. I definitely agree be, being intentional about it moving forward. The big thing too, and I, I think you touched on is taking yourself out of that situation for a minute. That's when taking that step back and looking at it because you know how it is when you're in it and everything's snowballing. You're in it, right? You know? Right. But the minute you take a break from something and you, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, this is what I liked. And this is what, here's what I miss. And here's what I don't miss. Right. Um, and I think that's been super helpful for me, too, is just kind of, you know, trying different things and and, you know, stepping out of your comfort zone. And, th- and then really just that reflection piece of looking back on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I really try to do that as well, like in in every aspect of my life, you know, like I with, uh, you know, I got a little stepson and there's things that 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 things about that I'm a new dad like he's only been in my life a couple of years so like I got to figure that out what's what's For the sure. right thing you one. know what I mean I make them I make the most mistakes there you know what what served me what served him what didn't like how do we I'm he's he's helping me grow he's showing me what doesn't work um yeah even stuff like that I think the really healthy part about that, which which everyone should should learn, is that it's okay to make mistakes, right? As long as we're learning from them, For make sure. those mistakes, and then see if you know what can I do better next time. Yeah. Instead of especially as, but I see a lot of people hold in so much where they have they can't make mistakes and they got to be perfect, and then you know you have all the stress and anxiety, and you're not a happy person. Where yeah, just realize it's okay to make some mistakes as long as you're learning from them. You know. For and, sure. And imagine parent that happens all the time right oh my god yeah <laughs> daily daily for sure and i mean i i learned that for myself you know i i i, I come from a, a past like of you know heavy addiction um for probably 17 years until i finally got clean and sober and you know there was a lot of a lot of that through through those years and there's still a lot now in recovery like I bet. Uh, you know like what recovery early recovery to now almost 12 years later um, it's, you know, I'm still learning about what I'm still learning about who I am and, and, and what I actually need in my life and what serves me well. And, you know, that sort of thing, right. you know, 44 years old. And I, and I feel, I still feel like I'm, I'm really trying to figure myself out. And, uh, well, and it's not a trip. It's so funny. Like when we were in, like I said, in the skin of days when I was 19, I said, all oh, the older guys. Yeah. And, you know, a 40 year old, I would have thought like, whoa, that dude's old. Well, here yeah. I am at 40 and I still feel like I'm that 20 year old most of the time, you know, like, oh my God. Yeah. You know, like back then you're like, oh yeah, once you're older and you have your shit together, it's like, man, I still don't have my shit together. <laughs> like, I don't think we'll man, ever have it together. I'm in a bad place for sure, but I, I definitely don't have it all figured out. I don't feel like I'm an overall responsible adult. You yeah. Know, we're still just <laughs> figuring things out as we go. So it's funny how that whole mind shift switches as you get older for sure. Cause now it's like, what's old to me? <laughs> it definitely isn't 40. No, you know? I mean, but I'm like you too. I still feel like I'm a 20 year old, you know, I, I, I feel like, and I'm doing the things that I'm more active than I was when I was 20, you yeah, know, no. I'm into, I'm into sports. I wasn't into sports back then. I was into, you know, drugs and alcohol, you know, I have purpose and meaning and that sort of thing today. Uh, yeah, that's huge. That I saw a lot of my friends, um, you know, going, going away to school or being in sports and that sort of thing. They had that purpose and meaning in their life. And I was wandering, you know, trying to escape. Yeah. And I you think know. that's different for all of us because I was the same as you. Like I had a lot of friends that knew what they wanted to do in high school. They right. went straight to college. They got straight into careers um, or into the military, whatever. It was awesome. But I had no idea until my 30s. You know, I didn't go back to school until I was 28 years old. I didn't get my master's degree until I was 37. Wow. Yeah. So, But when what I tell everyone is I was intentional when I did that. Like 
by then I knew what I wanted to do. So I enjoyed it. Right. Like when I tried school straight out of high school, like I said, I didn't like it. I was like, what is this? Oh, this is stupid. Yeah. But when it was like, hey, this is like when I got into psychology and something I was interested in, I loved school. I ate it up. I did great. But I had that focus because I knew at that point, here's what I wanted to do yes. versus just taking general eds and trying to figure it out as I go. So for me, that was, you know, waiting was the better bet for sure. For sure. You know, you know, stuff like that's different for everyone. I tell people a lot. I thought my 30s was way better than my 20s. Mm -hmm. In my 20s, like I said, you're kind of partying. I have no idea what I'm doing. I had a lot of fun, but I have no focus, no no direction. Right. Um, you know, in my 30s, I still have a lot of fun. Or I guess I'm 40 now, but you know, during my 30s, I was still partying yeah. a lot, had a lot of fun. But I had, you know, started to have a career kind of lined up. Was a little more responsible with money. I had better connections, better friends. Um, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, I I think I did the same amount of cool stuff, but I was way more focused and on the right path. For sure. So I always tell people when they're, when they're worried about, you know, oh no, at 30, I was like, man, 30s were the best. That was the best decade for me so far. Myself as well. Yeah, it was awesome, man. And I can't imagine 40s being much different for me, but I definitely don't be like, oh, I miss my 20s outside of maybe the, the stamina and the recovery time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And I don't think, I mean, looking back, even looking at 20 year old kids now, like how can we, how can anybody expect them to have that? focus on like where they want or drive to where they want to go sure, in sure. life. They're, I mean, we were kids, they're kids still at 20. You remember know? at like 19 or 20 in the hardcore scene or skinhead scene, you felt like an adult, right? Like I, oh, yeah. now, now I look, now I look at people that age and I'm like, Oh man, you have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> it cracks me up thinking that I thought I was a grown up at 19 years old, you know, for sure. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's great to reflect on. And, and I think, um, you know, for me, it's, it's just, I love to, I mean, my wife, my wife's 14 years younger than me. So I got to stay, I got to stay young. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I got an eight year old stepson to chase around. So I, you know, I make it my, my life's purpose to keep my, my body and brain, you know, as young as possible and, and stay yeah. active and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, and I, I think it was sometimes, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm into like boxing and Muay Thai now and, and, and training at the gym and everything. And, you know, I think, well, man, and, and I love it. You know, I've been doing it for about 12 years now. I'm nothing special, but I love to train. That's what I, you know, I love it. Man, Muay Thai's no joke. Yeah, man. It's, and I, I used to go, you know, I probably nine years I spent, I'd spend the winters out in Thailand, had a little place oh. there and yeah. And, and, you know, it's, and I, I, I think to myself sometimes, you know, if I, if I could have had that energy and put, put that, you know, at 20 years old, if I could have gotten the bug then you know where could i be today with that stuff but i kind of brought that up earlier too though is i think that same thing but then i also think would i've stuck with it was my motivation right. there or whatever you know what i mean like like you said okay maybe you got into it back then but you were also doing drugs and alcohol back then so would you have burnt out on it would you have stuck with it like yeah now at least like we got into to that stuff now when we're focused and dedicated to it and i feel like that's way more important than how long you've been doing it yeah yeah, that's a great point. And and yeah, it's not about it's not about quantity and in, in years you've been training or whatever. It's about the quality of of your training sure. and the dedication at the time, right? I mean, we'd both want to say, yeah, cool, we start the art, you know, respective sports at twenty and look how good we'd be now. Right. But who knows how much we'd be doing it, how you know, how much we who knows, right? Yeah. In theory it would be great, but in reality, who who really knows if we would have done it at all? For sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the way my life was when I was in my twenties, there's no way I you know, right. That's what I think too. Like pop in, pop out. Yeah. Like no way, no, no. way would I stuck with it. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so I want to I want to kind of circle back to um to to where we're at. Then um the first motorcycle club. Then you were, you belonged to a couple more clubs uh, before retiring, right? Yeah. So actually, so when I was leaving that whole punk rock skinhead stuff, um, mm. behind, I, I was really lost. Like, I, yeah, I, my whole identity was pretty much tied to that. You know, I, I pretty much did it my whole youth. Mm-hmm. Those are my friends. Um, I. I I, you know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to move or still live there. I was just going through a lot. And I actually had an attempt, a suicide attempt okay. where I had overdosed on sleeping pills. Mm. Um, didn't tell anybody, there's no note or anything, but I, I woke up sick. And so the person I lived with called the uh, 911 and I, I spent a week or so in the hospital and, you know, a psych ward and all that. And that's really when it kind of, you know, coming out of that, and I, I obviously it wasn't like overnight, but right. eventually being like, okay, this is kind of my second chance. And I know that might sound cheesy, but it was just kind no. of an awakening of, I felt like I needed to set to push the reset button. Okay. And I essentially did, you know, Yeah. Um, up until recently, I never even told people about this because it's one of those, it's kind of a shameful thing. Right. right. And, and we don't, a lot of times we don't talk about it. Um, but for me, and the reason I bring it up now is because I work with teens, you know, and, yeah. and I, I, people understand that I have felt that hopeless where I was like, dude, there's no point. What am mm-hmm. I going to do? So when I came back from that, I really wanted to have a point. I really wanted to have a focus. Um, and some of it was positive and some of it wasn't, but, you know, getting, getting, you know, riding and the freedom of being on a bike and then getting the brotherhood from a club, which was similar to what I had in the gang, it yeah. just kind of refocused me, okay. you know? And so I jumped in head first. So yeah, I, I hung out with the outsiders um, for a little bit and eventually started prospecting. And like I said, I, I was in a new, new scene and, and I was young and arrogant and I was, I mean, I tried so hard to prove myself to these dudes right? and I never really got opportunity um I, I remember one time i was taking a leak and i heard some of the guys fighting so i came running out like this is my chance man and one of the one of the uh officers in the club was going toe-to-toe with this younger mma guy so i come up and i catch him out the side hatch right thinking i got it yeah man, i was so amped i didn't look behind me he had like six friends behind me oh, so next thing you know i'm looking at my feet i'm going flying through the air and i land on a table and yeah broken up was no big deal but here i went from like thinking we're going to go back to the clubhouse. Everyone's going to talk how tough I am. And instead right. they all were calling me Chuck because I got thrown across the room. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I think one night at a bar too, a, a, a guy from another club was kind of uh, talking crap and I'm stirring up and he was directing at me. So I was like, all right, here's my chance. Right. So I go up and I hit him and he falls down and there was an older member there with me. And uh, you know, we kind of got into it and we left and we got back to the clubhouse. He took all the credit for it. And I was in that <sighs> spot where like, what? I'm, I'm the new guy. I can't say yeah. that didn't so I'm like, man, I keep trying so hard to show these dudes I'm down. <laughs> yeah, I never got the opportunity. I mean, looking back now, it's, that stuff's so irrelevant, right? But it was right. that's all I knew, man. At that age, I, I knew that I was that you know we were well known for violence, and that was kind of my thing. And so I was like, that was my way of proving myself. You yeah. know, um, obviously, what I know now would be a lot different. But back then, I was just like, hey, I want to show these guys I'm down, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what it takes. Right. Um, but I was going through all that life stuff, and I ended up moving to Nevada, so I, I left. The outsiders they actually let me leave um they called me inactive prospect so if i moved back i could pick up where i left okay off. and that was really cool of them yeah. but they taught me a lot of really cool stuff about the old school values of motorcycle clubs kind of the traditions and the old rules and right. i learned a ton from those guys man cool but when, when i moved to um nevada there was a club there called the vagos mm-hmm. and they were they were younger guys and so when i when i met them it was more of a like whoa wait a minute like these dudes were in more into skateboarding and punk rock and yeah and and so you know we were riding and going to concerts and we were doing more stuff up my alley so cool. i jumped in head first without even thinking about it so i joined the i joined the vagos um and that was pretty cool for a while and actually uh, the band seven seconds bobby their guitar player yeah i had met him and got him to join the club with me so there was like okay. oh dude seven seconds 
the you know what I mean? Yeah, it was yeah. like such a cool overlap. That's um, cool. There were some California clubs, so a lot of the guys in that club were from the punk rock scene or skinhead right. scene. And it was really, really cool for a while. And then um it just kind of started me as as I really got to get involved, I realized this wasn't really something for, like it was cool it just wasn't for me and i don't have anything yeah. bad to say about that club i think they're a great club but it wasn't aligning with my values okay um, and, and around then i had met some mongols so i ended up patching over to the mongols mm-hmm. and i took 15 or so guys with me oh wow um yeah so we, we started the first chapter in oregon and then we started a chapter at shasta county northern california and a couple guys in nevada came with me too okay um and so it ended up all and all in all it's been about 16 years so I right. spent, you know, a few months with the Outsiders, almost two with the Vagos, and then I was an active model for 14 years. Okay. And then I retired. I just retired a year ago, December. So year, last year. Okay. Last year. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So since you've since you've retired, um, you know, I I, I do want to talk about the the lift train ride movement that that you're involved in, and like I I, from what I have learned about it and what I see online about it. I mean, I think it's fantastic. You bring in a lot of the values that you that you're talking about, and the brotherhood, the accountability system, um, these sort of things that you know I think all of us kind of need in our life or crave in our life, right? For sure. Um, and so, so how does that how does that now? Um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about the about the movement um, and and sort of tell a bit what it's what it's about and kind of what the uh, what the direction you're you're going with this is. For sure. Yeah. So I was really, really lucky or, or I'll just say I'm very grateful for the fact that the chapter I was in on the club, we were so tight that mm-hmm. uh, when I decided to retire, another dude had just gotten arrested and he was put on non-association. Well, his his blood brothers in the chapter, I was roommate and a guy we worked with. So we were all so close in such a small town that if he got uh, legally, if he got caught wearing his patch, he'd go back to prison. He'd go to prison for two years. Right. So we all decided we were we were going to all going to take a step away at the same time. Okay. So I, I was very fortunate in the fact that I had a group of dudes that I was already tight with that was excited to start this new venture with me. Okay. And a lot of them had, they, they, no, most of them hadn't been in the club for more than a couple of years, but they at least had some of that experience so that when we were building something new, like we were talking about before, we knew, you know, the things we liked and didn't like. So yeah. we really focused on that foundation. And I think what really benefited us, we came from such a structured system, so many rules and, and so tight knit. Right. Um, and we, we actually thrived with that. So we, we wanted to keep that. Mm-hmm. So instead of being like a bunch of guys from a riding club or riding buddies, um, we brought that really heavy structure in with us. Okay. And because I, I guess my thought, my, my worry or concern was, you remember like in high school when you graduated and everyone's like, we're going to stay in touch. We're going to hang out all the time. Yeah. And then you look back and you, you just, you know, life happens. Right. Right. Well, I didn't want that to happen with us because I know it would. If we let it happen, it would, right? Sure. Everyone gets complacent or comfortable or getting into different things. Mm-hmm. So we set a lot of really strict rules. So one of them is everyone has to get together once a week, okay. whether, whether, um, and, and before, like in other, the club, we were supposed to do meetings once a week. But I, I noticed that if we were doing a meeting for the purpose of meeting and we didn't have anything good to talk about, you'd find something else to talk about and things right. would get negative or, or someone would be in trouble. Okay. So we changed it to um, once a week that that could be doing jujitsu class together. Cause most of the guys train, yeah. could be going to dinner together, going for a ride. So once a week, we all, for the most part, we all get together and just hang out, right? Yeah, just cool. share the brotherhood and kick it. Once a month we sit down and have an actual meeting and, and um, you know, with just one chapter, there's not a lot to talk about, sure. but we'll plan, we'll plan rides or runs or parties and, you know, just fun stuff really. Yeah. 
so we do so the big thing is how close we like we made it a point that we stay tight-knit and there's the part of that is that structure and the rules right like we have to do it or there's fines or discipline Mm -hmm. um and then we have to work out three days a week a minimum of three days a week whether it's lifting weights or doing a fighting art or or something you enjoy but three days a week of something positive and is Um, that with each other is that like with another brother or is that everyone has to check in so we have a system where when you work out we keep track but a lot of times it's you know like uh, mike and i do jujitsu a lot together or, mm-hmm. or um you know um mark and blake are lifting weights together so a lot of times yeah we try and do it together or at least in smaller groups yeah cool um so so we there's a, like that overlap of spending time with each other and working out together right. but sometimes we're doing it on our own too yeah um cool. but we both i mean we have to do both of those things so th- those are the biggest things we we have the structure of a motorcycle club as far as we have some officers and some rules but it's not necessarily for leadership or power like it might be in a club it's more for just upholding the structure so that we can all have something to hold ourselves accountable to yeah and that's the biggest piece right is is listen we can say everyone has to work out three days a week but if there's not accountability then what's the point right i mean i think that's awesome to have accountability partners um and and a group of guys that are all like-minded into the same things i mean that's what i i I think that's what every man wants you know what i mean like a bunch of homies that want to that want to you know, ride bikes, train, you know, do combat sports, like stuff like that, that, or whatever you're into, but common, you know, common goals, common interests. Um, you know, you actually want to be with the people and yeah, when you, when you don't show up, it's like, you know, where are you at? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you training? Sure. Why aren't you, you know, and we need that. It circles back to what we were talking about earlier, as far as that when you go through experience, those types of experience with people, how much tighter your brotherhood is. Yeah. So it wasn't that we're just, I mean, spending time on the road on a motorcycle with someone you get to know them really well, but now we're doing it on the mat in jujitsu right. um, you know, at their house. Like this year we did, we did a Thanksgiving with the whole chapter. We have all of our families do Thanksgiving together. Cool. We try and set like doing new year's together. We try and set these traditions too, so that we always are hanging out and having fun. And it's not, there's no mandatory. It's just, we all want to, right. I mean, I guess there is mandatory in the fact that there's rules for, again, to hold people accountable, but we all want to do it. Like no one's forced to do it. Um, Spending really good quality time. Cause I I think a big piece of it is, and my biggest takeaway, I think coming from the club world is I wanted to to look back and say that whatever I was involved in had a positive impact on someone's life. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that club world doesn't because a lot of the programs we ran really did, Mm -hmm. but everyone's heard the horror stories, right? Oh, I joined this club or this gang and my life went downhill and, wasn't for that I, I wouldn't be in prison or my wife wouldn't have left me right and man that's a pretty tough burden and when i was in the club i helped um you know a, a good friend join this club and he was ended up being killed just because he was in the club oh, and that man. sat really heavy on me man i mean it still does you know and yeah. I, I hold a lot feel a lot of responsibility to that and that was my big thing of i wanted to feel like i'm bringing a positive influence like hey once i joined this group or this movement my life actually got better not right. worse because, you know, from doing sports and stuff, that accountability piece, it'll it'll radiate to all sorts of different ecologies in your life, right? For sure. Um, like one of the really strict rules we have, which a lot of the guys weren't used to, um, is that if you commit to something, you have to do it or there's a fine. So if you and I are talking and we, even if we're just drinking and said, yeah, tomorrow night we're going to go get dinner. And if, if the next day you say, hey, I'm not going to make it, now I'm going to fine you for it because okay. you committed, gave me your word that you're going to be there. Yep. Now, if there's an emergency, obviously that's not the case, right? Sure. But uh, we all go through those things where we're having a good time. We're excited. We say, yeah, tomorrow we're all going to ride. And then we all have that friend that always bails out or, yeah. or you know what I mean? Sure. This kind of not showing up. And we're trying to take that out that we want to be able to count on each other. So if a man, you know, a man's only as good as his word. And I know that's pretty cliche, but it's fact. 
It is. Um, yeah. So we, we really are trying to bring that. Hey, if you say I'm going to be there next week, you're going to be there next week. Yeah. Um, and that just falls back into that accountability piece. If you tell me, Hey, I'm working out this week, I'm gonna expect you to work out this week. Right. And, and I think stuff like that makes us be better men in our relationships and our personal lives and in the, in the, you know, in, our, in the group. So it's, it's one of those things that I think that has just a positive influence on everybody and everything. It does. And it's got a ripple effect too, right? And that's the big goal, you know, and it's because now a lot of the wives are working out because we're working it, you know what I right. mean? Like your partner's going and you're going, and then, you know, once you're, whether you're doing sports or lifting, now you want to eat a little better, mm-hmm. um, you know, or like uh, me and Mike were just talking yesterday. He wants to get ready for a tournament next year. I was like, well, you're gonna have to start sleeping better, drinking more yeah. water. But those are all positive things that come out of that type of lifestyle, you know? Right. And don't get me wrong. We're not Boy Scouts. Most of us aren't sober. There's a couple of guys that are clean and sober, but some mm-hmm. of us are pretty. But again, we hope we have that accountability piece. Like we've actually had to sit down with some brothers and say, hey, listen, I think your partying's out of hand. How can we right. help? Uh, and, and we, you know, kind of do that quote unquote, um, intervention but yeah it's the and and those things are never fun to do just those types of meetings that you dread but it's good it's for the good right and after that you care yeah and we've been so much tighter after that stuff like you know we get in these arguments or fights but when everyone realizes it's for their best interest right it just brings us closer together as a group yeah and and that's our biggest thing i tell everyone i don't honestly i I mean we have a no meth and no heroin rule for obvious reasons Mm -hmm. um but if people want to do other stuff, like we just say, Hey, I don't care, but here's, here's the caveat to that is if you start missing work or you're missing your workouts or it's, it's having a negative impact in your life, then yeah. we're going to cut it out. Yep. But if you can do it, you know, on some weekends or even if I don't care, even if you do it every weekend, but it doesn't interfere with your life. You're just, then to me, I don't see it as any different than anything else. But if it does, you have us to step in and say, okay, dude, right. This is that time to scale it, scale it back. We all need friends like that. We all need friends that will call us on our bullshit, right? Like, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, that's a, I love that about it. You know, to me that having that, that accountability and that person that I know that, okay, my shit, if I don't keep my shit tight, somebody's going to step in. I mean, it's a, it's teaching me not to let my, not to let my shit slip. Right. For one. And B that I know that maybe if I don't see it when things are slipping, I got, you know, 10 guys behind me that are going to actually call me on it and do something yeah, about and it. That's before the big it gets... part. Yeah. I saw from the club world, a lot of people would come in that didn't party or clean and sober and would start drinking or partying a little bit or doing this and that. Yeah. And they would, it ended up ruining their, their life or their club career or whatever, because they would go so heavy into it. And there was, everyone else was doing it and, oh, hey, we're all outlaws. So there's no rules. And there really wasn't anyone to step in and say, well, hold on, dude, like, this yeah. is impacting you in a way that I don't like seeing. I don't like seeing how this is hurting your life. Or I don't like seeing you and your lady fighting when you don't need to or getting fired. Right. We take that level now that we will step in. We yeah. will step in and say, hey, man, this is this is having a negative impact and we're here to help. I love that. Yeah, that's amazing. It's been cool. And it's not, hey, we're going to kick you out for it. It's how can we help you? Right. As you know? it should be. And I think yeah. That's the biggest part. And, and you know how it is. If you feel like you're letting down people you're tight with, that's an extra motivator to get your shit together. At least it 100%. is for me. Yeah. And so I think that's played a big role, too, as I've seen it in the guy's face when they like realize, oh, man, it's not just me. I'm hurting other people by doing this. Yeah. Um, you know, it really motivates you to, to tighten it up. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's been really cool. And then on top of that, we're all men with egos, right? And competition. <laughs> so if I'm working out and you're working out, we're going to see who can get bigger or if we're both doing jujitsu. Sure. Like me and Mike go at each other hard at jujitsu because we're both homies doing it, right? Like, yeah. Um, and in a respectful way, but you know what I'm saying. But it, it actually, it's been positive because now if Mike misses a class, I'm going to say, hey, man, I've been training four days this week. Where were you? Right. And then, oh, I better go versus if it was just me going on my own. So 
there's so many cool things that come out of it um, because we're all doing it. You know, like no one wants to be the skinniest guy. No one wants to be the fattest guy. We're all sure. like <laughs> who looks better and who fights better, but right. not in like, not in a, like going out and getting in trouble, just in a positive, like fun way. Right. Know? Right. It's all constructive and, and it's, it's all positive sure. and, and all headed, headed in the right direction. And I think another big thing that I think I, I don't talk about a lot, but mm-hmm. has been a huge impact is how hard I try and, or our group tries to keep everyone out of trouble. Like we have, yeah specific rules where you can't be sloppy drunk when we're all out together. Right. If you want to do that, we'll do it at home. Okay. Um, you, ha- you have to leave the bar by midnight, like, because nothing hmm. really good happened after that. True. Um, we stay, you know, we're on the buddy system and we, you know, normally if you're like out on the bike, you can't, you're not supposed to be out by yourself for the most part, but we have these things that we took from the club. And these were rules we had in, in the chapter in the club too, but there's things we took that are actually to protect everybody and keep right. everybody safe. Sure. As we look at these things, what drives these behaviors and, and why are people getting arrested? And, you know, a lot of the time it's because I, I made a bad decision at the bar late at night or exactly. I might be sober, but some drunk guy made a bad decision. Yeah. So we're trying to I'm not saying we're not going to go to bars. So then we, if we are, let's limit the opportunities we have for issues. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we run a pretty tight security protocol that hopefully people look and say, OK, I'm not even going to try it in the first place. Right. Sure. Um, and then on the flip side of that, too, is really, really, really instilled this, uh, you know, treat people how you want to be treated. So we're actually very polite when we're in public, you know, and, right. and, and you know, it is for guys like us and you're covered in tattoos, it's going to go one or another way. But yeah. usually when people all of a sudden see you smiling and laughing, it kind of chills everything out. And, and it goes from, man, those guys look scary to, man, those guys were cool. And I would much yeah. rather it be the were cool than anything else. For sure. Honestly, I think that people that are that have a lot of tattoos or that look a certain way, I think that we have like almost an obligation to to be friendly, to smile, to to prove people wrong, to prove that 80 year old woman, you know, that's looking at me sideways. I want to hold the door open for her and tell her to have a, you know, have a wonderful day because I want her to say, wow, that he looks like that, but he acts like this. Maybe there's something to that. And it's such a good feeling, too. Right. When you do that, that was my biggest thing when we wore a patch is. We'd show up and everyone would go, oh, shit, these guys are here. The Mongols are here. But then yeah. we left. They'd always go, man, those were the coolest guys. They were the nicest group of guys. Like, I wouldn't mess with them, but they were great. Yeah. That's the thing that always gave me that, like, motivation to, to keep going is because I loved that part of it. Mm-hmm. I love that you better than to mess with them, but they're welcome here anytime. They're respectful. They're polite. They're not bullying anybody because, you know, a lot of people miss in this biker scene is ours all these places are no patches are allowed or clubs aren't allowed because right. there's so many people. And I wouldn't even put on any specific club. There's so many people that put a patch on, I think it makes them tough and they go around bullying people and don't yeah. touch me and watch where you're walking. And then they're getting in fights. Well, if you keep doing that, I mean, that's up to you. You want to do it cool. If you keep doing that, how many friends are you going to have and how many people are going to let you, how many plate bars going to let you keep coming in and coming right. back. And you also got to think how many of those people might even be sitting on your jury one day. Right. Right. But if you, if you're are building your community in a positive way, you, you have so many more doors open, mm-hmm. you know, you're welcome at so many more places. And all of a sudden you might have allies where you didn't think you did. And, you know, if there is an issue, you might have people even step in and help, you know, calm it down. So it's there's just so many more positives to being a polite and friendly person than trying to be a tough guy. For sure. And especially if you're if you're stereotyped to be one way, change some people's minds. You know, Definitely. it's great. It's a great like you said, it's a great feeling to know that, you know, you walked into a place and eh, they didn't know if they wanted you in there. And then you walk out and you're welcome back anytime. That's yeah, fantastic, it's so right? cool. Man. And I like hearing that. You know how rumor stuff or whatever you hear back. I always love hearing like, oh, man, I met Mooch and he was really cool. It was way different. I expect and he was really nice. That's the type of stuff that motivates me. I can not yep. care less at my age if people think I'm tough or not. When I was younger, <laughs> right. I cared, right? Yeah. Now, 
whatever. Like, sure. You know what I mean, I'm not that tough. I'll be straightforward. I'm not. I don't like fighting. It hurts. I'm over it. I'd sure. rather hang out and have a good time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's just funny how that kind of shifts too. But mm-hmm. it's, it's just a lot cooler. You know, I'd rather be remembered at the end of the day as a good person than, oh, yeah, yeah. that guy was a scary tough guy. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Okay, so um, how long ago was it then that you had the spinal surgery? I think it's just, just over three years. Three years? And what exactly happened there? Well, so I was having um, <clears throat> just a lot of different pain issues and stuff that I really just thought was related to training. I guess being, being close to 40 in training, I just figured yeah. I was giving my body a hard time. And so I was going to a bunch of different chiropractors back and forth, and sometimes it would help, and sometimes it didn't. And um, towards the end, it was getting so bad that I couldn't really move my right arm in any way I did was like really, really painful. So I wasn't sleeping. And, um, and I finally came in and went and saw a doctor mm-hmm. and I did, did some x-rays and MRIs. And it turned out I had this uh, disease called OPLL where the, the ligament in my neck had calcified essentially, you know, got hard and was turning into bone and it was just crushing everything in there. So I had pretty bad stenosis. I had a several crushed, uh, discs or herniated discs and then pretty bad, um, arthritis in there too. So everything was essentially jamming into my spinal cord and that's where I was getting all these different pains. And, and essentially, I guess, you know, pr- progressively would get worse um, to the point where you couldn't grip things, you would lose balance and fall over, okay. possibly couldn't control, uh, you know, body fluids and stuff like that. And and the, the scary part about it is, is there's, they can't fix it. They can just stop it from getting worse. Right. So at my age that, you know, there was varying, I, I saw four or five different surgeons because I didn't want to have surgery. Okay. Um, and, and there was a few that said, Hey, just wait. But the, the few that I stuck with said, Hey man, you can wait. But, it, you know, it gets there. I can't make anything better. So if it gets to the point where you can't hold anything or you're pissing your pants, right. that's going to be life for you. Yeah. And I don't want to take, I didn't want to take that risk. I, I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty resilient guy. And, and on top of that, man, with the amount of pain I was in, if they would have said I have to cut your arm off, I would have said, let's do it. Right. Um, because I've grown up with, you know, so many people addicted to pain pills and different stuff that I really tried so hard not to go down that road to, to mm-hmm. take care of it. Um, and so it was a struggle. And so, uh, I, I eventually, I, I opted for the surgery and it was a pretty serious one. They, they had to fuse uh, C2 through T1. So pretty much my entire cervical spine. Wow. Um, I did luck out in the fact that I guess they couldn't attach to C2 and I didn't know this at the time, but they had told me it was going to uh, limit a lot of my, uh, mobility. Okay. And I didn't C1 and C2 are the one for side to side and I didn't lose much side to side. So that part was helpful, but this is up and down. This is about all I got. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And then, I, man, I still am in pain daily, but it's nothing like it was before. And it's more different. It, it continues to get better every day. A lot of it's because it changed my posture and the way I sit and stuff. And so I had to start working out different muscles. I got a trainer that helped me with, like, core strength and a lot okay. of stuff. Yeah. So that, that, that was super helpful. Um, and then, you know, I just kind of worked through it. And then it, it just keeps getting better. The more I think for me, it's the more active I stay, the better it stays. Right. Um, and then I take a lot of breaks, man. I'm thankful enough that I kind of work from home on and off. And so, you know, I'll lay on the heating pad, I'll stand up and stretch. Like I have to be uh, pretty cognizant of like my body posture or if I'm riding the bike, how long I'm riding and stuff like that. But yeah. it's, I'm able to work around it for sure. And and I think I'm better off with it than I was with, before it. So. Yeah. Well, a hundred percent. I think the surgery was the, the right call. And I mean, I, I can remember seeing some posts that you put of like post-surgery, like it, it was that was serious. And, you know, yeah. I can imagine that the recovery from that took a lot of, a lot of resilience, a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication to like just getting those small movements back and, and dealing with that pain and, 
and um you know like and and also not wanting to rely on pain meds to manage that pain right so you're probably looking at more holistic stuff and and doing the you know the physio for that like i i i would imagine that um you know taking your training like your 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 time training jujitsu and and the 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 kind of like um the process that you know you need to go through to get yourself to the next phase of of things did that come into play like did you use sort of that mind same mindset there as far as the recovery yeah definitely i tell a lot of people with jujitsu i really learned that like no matter how hard it gets you got to finish the round out right like yes yeah no how tired you are someone's squishing you there there's no you, you know you're not going to just tap and, and go out so you've got to finish it and, and that's I've taken that mindset with me into getting, you know, when you're getting a painful tattoo or on a long motorcycle right. ride, but definitely the same, like the, this current moment is very unpleasant and I don't like it, but there's nothing I can do about it. So I have to endure it to get through it. Yeah. And I think that mindset helps me a lot because it really was terrible, man. That was like the recovery, the the pain of that. I, in my head, I think, oh, a lot of older people get it. It can't be that bad. And, you know, mm-hmm. I kind of didn't think it was going to be. It was so painful that I actually stayed in the hospital an extra three days because I wasn't ready to get in the car and get a ride home. Wow. I actually had him keep my catheter in an extra day because it hurt so bad to sit up. So it was like, yeah. it was really, really brutal. Jeez, yeah. I mean, but what are you going to do? I could sit there and feel sorry for myself about it or or take, you know, a bunch of, I mean, I they gave me a prescribed pain medication and I took it until it ran out. But you know what I mean? I, I could have done a lot of other things and I didn't. I I just mm-hmm. hunkered down and said, okay, this is how it's going to be. And thankfully, you know, my amazing wife took great care of me and have such a rat support system and, yeah. you know, got club were coming and helping me out. And the so important. Jitsu team came by and cleaned my whole house before I came home and set up my, my wedge pillows. And I had such a good support system. Yeah. That it made the recovery a lot better too. And then once I got to the point, I think it was about three or four weeks that I could really get up and walk around. I'm still in a lot of pain. I couldn't move well, but I would go to, class and they they built me a little bed in the corner and oh, i was right uh, yeah and i would just kind of sit there upright against this little like folding bed thing and watch class okay so then, I, then i you know i was still feeling like i was participating i actually i felt like i learned some stuff but I, it kept me in a positive mindset where i wasn't just sitting there staring at the ceiling too you know yeah a hundred percent just to be in that environment where people are pushing themselves and positive and you're in a place where you know that's your support system as well, or one of your support systems. Definitely. Um, and it motivated I mean, me to want to get back to it. Like, you know, you sit yeah. there, they told me I could, they, you know, obviously they told me with, with this type of surgery, I should never do jujitsu again. I wasn't going to do jujitsu. And so sitting there and watching it fueled that I'm going to, I'm coming back to this. Like I'm going to figure yeah. out a way to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I can, I can, I can relate somewhat to that. I, you know, I, I tore my ACL about seven years ago out in Thailand, uh, about a week before a fight out there i had to get flown back home you know i was i worked for the fire department so i was off work for about a year and a half after the surgery and recovery and couldn't train couldn't do anything but i sat and watched muay thai videos all day every day because i didn't want to lose that sort of fire for it and i needed that motivation and when i could finally get up and same same like you said i could finally get up and go to the club go and, and watch people train i just sat there and enjoyed watching people and yeah, I think you do learn something almost like through osmosis, just being in the environment. It might yeah. not be, it's not physical, but you learn, you, you know, you're in the environment and, you know, you're getting that positive, that, that positivity from a, any kind of fight gym um, that and you got the, the, you know, the people there that support you. Um, you're watching people do something that you love and that you desperately want to get back to. And it does yeah. just, it keeps that fire kind of, 
stoked in the, you know, as, yeah. as you're healing and, you know, little by little you get back and, you know, today, you know, I, I'm, you know, I can train, I can train just like I could before the surgery, but it was a long road. And yeah, I can't quite do what I did before, but I'm close enough that I'm very happy with it. The fact yeah. that I can still go train. I, I, I tried to compete uh, this year thinking that, okay, cool. I can do it. And yep. it, I don't think I would do it again. Um, but you know, I, I have a great support system and guys that they won't crank on my neck or pull on my head. And, you right. know, I, I, these world-class athletes, these guys are winning major tournaments and they'll, they'll roll chill with me. And I'm not asking them to go easy, but you know what I'm saying? They'll avoid my injury. Right. Um, so I can still go 110% and I right. can still train as hard as I want to. So, so to me, that's worth it. Like to me, I'm pretty much back to where I was. I had to change how I do a lot of things. Like I'm sure you could imagine, mm-hmm. So you know, like I said, I grew up wrestling. So in jujitsu, I always wanted to start on my feet. Right well, now, I can't risk a fall, right, or getting thrown. So now I have to start from open guard and seated, and I'm terrible at that. But okay. I've been doing it for a few years straight now. You know what I mean? So it's it's helped me to focus on a lot of other things. My, you know, I used to always my jujitsu game was more of this wrestling, get on top, stay on top. Mm-hmm. And now I've, now I've had to work a lot of bottom and close guard and stuff that I wasn't comfortable with. So um, I just had to do it different, but I'm still fully able to do it. So that's been really cool yeah. for me too. And that's kind of cool that you're, you know, yes, you you went through some, you know, a major a major thing that 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 got in the way of your training but now it's almost forced you to look at the deficiencies that you had or get out of your comfort zone of starting on your feet and Definitely. now you know now you're going to be more proficient because you've been forced to be but now that's going to be your comfort zone where it never would have been had it not been for this injury i'm sure you know it's yep. it's forced you to that place which i think is very cool like it's um and i and i see that too in the way that i i take care of my joints now and you know, I'm, I, and I'm an old, like, I'm 44 years old. I, I, I shouldn't be, and I'm sparring with 21 year old kids that, yeah. you know, I, I gotta be careful, you know? And, um, you know, I, it, it, it changes everything. Um, an injury like that can be so, yes, it's brutal at the time and it sucks to go through the recovery, but you come out so much more, uh, it's so much better equipped, I think, mentally for that thing that you love, right? There was a ton of positives about it. You know, obviously I'd love to never have to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were, it was a lot of really positive takeaways from it. I mean, that it's also what got me in a kettlebells. I'm more focused on core strength because I yeah. work posture. I started really getting more into functional strength versus Olympic lifts. Um, right. You know, a lot of cool kind of like paradigm shifts that, that, that pushed me into those different mindsets. And those have all been huge takeaways for me. And honestly, too, with jujitsu thing, when I first moved out here to join this team, I was trying to hang with those 20 year olds. Right. I was trying to compare myself to these guys that are trying to be champions and I have a full-time job and a wife and I I just couldn't train as often as they are. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then it was starting to not be very fun because I felt like I was letting myself down. I was letting the team down Mm -hmm. and and between, you know, I'm getting ready for competitions and now I go for fun. And so I enjoy every single class. Like I've never left there bummed out or in a bad mood. Because yeah. for me now, I'm going to stay in shape and be social with my friends. Like, I'm that guy down there now that I'm going to BS with you while we're rolling. I'm going to make jokes in the corner. You know sure. what I mean? Like, I legit yeah. love being there. It's like my social time with my crew, where before it was almost turning into a job. Right. And I think that that big mental shift was huge for me, too. Like, yeah. hey, you don't have to do this. You want to do this. Yeah, I uh, I could definitely relate to that. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, a lot of years just beating myself up over why I couldn't hang with the, you know, the younger yeah. guys, why I couldn't progress, why I was losing fights, why. And it was this like, and I ended up going to train almost to like in this like vengeful way. 
not because like this is the thing that I love again. And and you right. know I've I've had to and the same th- same with me. I've had to shift my whole mindset around it and realize that I'm not a competitor. I'm I'm a, a practitioner. I like to I like to train and I like to work out and I like to have fun and hopefully I like the people I'm training with. You know and, yeah. and most likely and that's does. definitely I, I think that's the great part is that i'm not a competitor and practitioner like i'm here to learn and hang out and have fun and that's mm-hmm. not saying you can't still compete right do you want to challenge yourself from time to time cool sure. but it's just changing the expectations you have for yourself yeah yeah it's been a tough one and you know my my wife is um so she she's just recently gotten really into jujitsu and wrestling she's fighting mma now she that's doesn't awesome. lose like she this girl just does not lose she's a tank i mean She's amazing. She's she's like sparring with, you know, girls in the UFC and and giving them a go even. And, you know, it's been um, it's been a really challenging but exciting thing for me to be a part of, because, like I said, she's a lot. She's 30. Right. And, uh, you know, and she's she's still in her prime and she's really enjoying it. But, you know, she also she's a mother. uh, You know, she's a tattoo artist. You know, we own a shop together like she's she's a full time a full-time person, but then doing this also and, and just excelling at everything. And um, it's really cool to, to be a part of Uh, for a while. I, I, and I've been guilty of, of getting, you know, I have envy towards my wife that she's doing, she's doing, she's excelling at fighting when your wife is excelling at fighting and you keep losing. It's like, it's, uh, it's hard for the ego, right? Like it's growing up, especially in our area, you grow up and there's like, all these expectations on the man and the man's the tough guy. And, mm-hmm. and you and I are in that overlap where to me, awesome. I think it's great, but there, you know, it's that overlap now of, um, you know, there's a lot more women doing the same sports and the same things. And there are some badass women out there doing all oh, this yeah. cool stuff and it's awesome and we love it. But when it first happens, I'm sure it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around, right? Like I'm supposed to be the tough one in this relationship. I'm supposed to be the protector. And all of a sudden you got your chick who's kicking just as much ass, if not more, yeah, um, more. <laughs> and, and yeah. Once, once it, you know, once you comprehend it and go through it, it's incredible, right? But just mm-hmm. that, I think anyone have that initial reaction of, um, kind of an ego bruise, so to speak, right? Yeah. Well, wait, wait a minute. She's doing better at this than I am. It's, it was a, a real tough pill to swallow, and you know, like it was that. That's exactly what it was. You know, I was jealous. I was envious. I was. It was my ego was bruised, and I was like, but I'm the man. I'm supposed to be the, you know, and then I, I've been able to, and not without help from, you know, she's a phenomenal, like the most amazing woman I've ever met in my life. And, you know, just having conversations around it with her, she's been so patient with me. And then, you know, other people in my life that, you know, coaches and stuff where I've just been able to like air this like to them and say like, Hey, this is how I'm feeling. Like, what do you suggest? And I've been able to, with help from other people, wrap my head around it and actually be proud of her. I, I've always been proud of her, but to right, be at a different level though, at a different level and be happy to sit in the supporters seat. Yeah, that's you awesome. know what I mean? It's really that's cool. One of the things we talked about with other stuff, learning a lesson in one environment that translates to everything else. And that's 100%. one of those, right? Like, yeah. Like I can put my ego in check and be happy for somebody else. Um, see something I care about being positive and it doesn't affect me. Like having yes. those of mindsets it's something that we, you know growing up we all might say that we're like that but it's different in practice and when you it actually really deal with it and go through it so yeah. it's so cool that you've come through it come out of it and it's obviously i'm sure it's tightened your relationship it's your respect level between the two of you is probably tighter like there's probably so many cool positives that came out of that for sure for sure 
So you're a social worker now. Um, what kind of what kind of led you to that work, and and sort of what was the what was the driver there for for you know getting into social work? What kind of like sparked your interest in that, and like which direction have you gone with it? I think you know growing up with teachers and stuff, I always just kind of had that innate like caring for others and wanting to help others, mm-hmm. um, whether I realized that at the time or not, right? But I, I've always been like that friend that people are coming to for advice or want to talk through things and. Even yeah. when I don't have it figured out on my own, I feel like I've been good at helping other people figure stuff out. Yeah. Um, so I think that probably drove it at first. And then looking back too, I mean, you know, doing this anti-racism and uh, that's really like social activism and, you know, yeah. advocating for others and trying to make systematic changes. Um, so I was really doing it before I knew I was doing it. Sure. Um, and when I was trying to, you know, the last time I got out of jail, I was like, listen, I don't want to come back here. This isn't me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've talked about it before and nothing against anyone that's ever been in jail either, but you know, I was yeah. looking around, I was like, this isn't me. I'm not this guy. Like I have so many tools at my disposal to not have to come here, you know? Right. Um, and so I wanted to make, I wanted to make a, a life change. And so I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and, and what kind of things interested me and, um, you know, trying to see where my life was going to go. And there was a, a guy in the club in the Mongols named Richie Rich, who has his doctorate he's got a PhD in clinical psychology. Oh, wow. And and did a lot of uh, drug and alcohol counseling and stuff. And so that and I have a felony, too. So I was also trying to think, what can I do with all these tattoos and a criminal record? Um, Right. And and I I wasn't thinking about financially. Obviously, I went into social work, but I was thinking like, you know, a fulfilling like something I would like doing every day. And so I figured, well, hey, if Richie Rich can do it and he's got more tattoos than me and he's one of the most gangster dudes I know, then I could probably do it. So I, I started with drug and alcohol counseling. Okay. And I, I somewhat enjoyed it. It was fun and exciting. But from that, I, I got into psychology and I loved mm. psychology and I got really into psychology. I got my bachelor's degree in social and behavioral studies. So it was a, a blended major of psychology and sociology. And um, I, I know I wanted to keep going for my master's degree. And I chose social work because of the breadth of it. Like, you know, if I do psychology as a master's or doctorate, you have to do like just clinical or, you know, certain things where social work you can do a ton of different things with it. I can do one-on-one counseling. I can work at the systematic level. Um, you know, I could work to help change laws. I can do so many different things. And still I was trying to figure out what I was going to like and not like, you know, like I said, at first I thought I was really going to be into drug and alcohol counseling. So, yeah. So I got my master's on social work. I started out doing drug and alcohol counseling and then just traditional one-on-one therapy. Okay. Uh, I learned pretty quick. I wasn't a big fan of drug and alcohol counseling. Oh yeah. Why is that? I think mainly because it was probably the program I was in, but everyone was court ordered. So no okay. one wanted to be there. No one, you know, they, yeah. they were, everyone was, no one was being honest about what was going on. They were just, okay. they were just putting in their hours, so to speak. And I, right, didn't, right. I didn't feel like we were making any, any change. And uh, that's going to be tough to go to work every day and feel like, well, these people are just putting in the time and I'm not, you know, I'm putting in all this work and seeing no change. There's no, exactly. there's no payoff at the end of this hard work. And, and I think at the flip too, that was that job. I was, I had too many clients. I was pretty overworked and burnt out. Okay. So it was kind of the icing on the cake. Sure. Um, but I did have the good takeaway I had is I also did a group up for um, perpetrators of domestic violence. It was called men's challenging violence. Okay. And they were also court ordered, but I did see huge change. Really? It really motivated me in this field. And I mean, that's something I believe in anyways. And, and mm-hmm. something we just kind of talked about too, but um, you know, I, I think for lack of a better term is that that feminist perspective, but it's really teaching a human being, cre- treating a human being as an equal and yeah. recognizing their strengths, regardless of what gender they are. Um, sure. and, and knowing that whether it's a woman or a man or who you don't have control over another person. Right. And 
And, you know, you see a lot of times growing up that this is learned behavior and people don't even understand that it's okay or not okay because they, I saw my parents do it. And this is what I, and even culturally it was a big thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think changing that shift was huge, man. And that's one of those things where I really started to have that feel good. Like I'm making progress. I remember one of my first sessions or two, I think most of the guys thought I was in the group. Right. (laughs) Okay. uh, A guy was talking about not letting his wife wear short skirts when she leaves the house. And he's like, you know what I'm talking about, right, bro? And I was like, nah, man, I don't. And (laughs) I remember watching him being so confused, you know? And then two months later, another new guy coming in and similar thing happened. And that first guy going, nah, man, that's not cool. And that was one of the things where I was like, yes, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, That's amazing. Yeah. And so. So that's when I really, really got bought into what I do. And I, and I, uh, okay. and that was a big focus of mine. I'd love to actually get back into to that group again or do more counseling like that. Um, mm-hmm. But what I do now is I'm a, a clinical supervisor for a group and we do multi-systemic therapy. Okay. So we're working with teens that are on parole, parole and probation, um, mm-hmm. 12 to 17 year olds that are at risk okay. of being placed outside of the home. So whether they're going to jail or whether they have to go to a foster home or residential treatment. So it's right. kind of the last ditch to keep this youth in the home. And okay. what we do, the, the multi-systemic, is we look at all of the ecology and see what's driving these behaviors. So whether it's, you know, a lot of times it's parenting or moms, not, and I don't mean poor parenting, but it might be a single single parent or mom's working so much that there's no supervision for the youth. So what we do is right. how can we get everyone in the system to help? So whether we get them involved in pro-social activities like sports or, um, you know, help with supervision over here or getting them going to church or you know, whatever positive things the community has to offer. So we really, instead of treating the behavior, we try and treat what drives the behavior so that there's lasting change. Mm. So our biggest thing is instead of being this type of social work where we go in and do stuff for mom or dad, we are empowering them to do it for themselves so that when we are no longer in their lives, they have learned these new tools to be better parents um, and, you know, change these behaviors. So a lot of what we do is teaching parents rules rewards and consequences and discipline and structure um and as you can see i mean you probably heard me say structure a hundred times today so it's a big part of my life (laughs) but we we teach we teach parents how to provide that in the household and um Mm -hmm. really cool and again one of those things where you could see this kid that was just um maybe needing attention or just you know crave some structure in his life which kids don't think they do but they usually do and so here's these kids about to go to jail and dropping out of school and, and after 120 days in the program they're doing great and they're, you know, they're doing positive things and moving on. So this, it's been super positive. And I, I've been doing this for about four years now. Wow. That's very cool. So you're, you, you treat, basically you're treating, you're treating the whole family, really. You're not treating yeah. like, and, and so you're, you're treating it as a, as a unit, not yeah. like, here's a troubled kid. Let's see what's going on with him. For sure. It's what does he need and how can we provide it in a holistic way? Yep. The kids are the client, but honestly, we do most of our sessions with, with parents. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. we don't do any one-on-one sessions with the kid just because for what we do, um, there's not a lot of value in it. Like I, I love to hear how he's doing, but seeing how he's currently feeling about something isn't rec- necessarily going to tell me what's driving those behaviors. And, and a lot of that stuff, you know, you can figure out just from being around, right. From talking to the parents, yeah. what's going on. Um, so there is, you know, we do find ways to treat trauma and, and, improve relationships and communication. But a lot of it is by trying to find the underlying issue first. So we treat each, what we call them a driver, like what's driving the behavior. We, we okay. treat each driver instead of just in, in hopes that that's, what's going to change the whole behavior. Right. Right. That's very cool. And a lot of times drivers overlap 
to other behaviors. So, so say the youth's smoking weed and I say, hey, what's really driving this is he's got negative peers. And on top of that, he's, he's got no supervision. Well, right. if we if we come up with a supervision plan and, and plan and increase supervision, and then mom knows who his peers are, who sure you can hang out, you can imagine that's also going to help probably with school. That's also going to help right. with truancy or leaving home without permission. So sure. a lot of those times, those drivers will affect the other behaviors too. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, and, and that's that's very meaningful and purposeful work too. I mean, and to be able to see that that change within you know x amount of months or sessions or whatever it is like that's got to be very rewarding for you as well right it's awesome man so so the cool thing too is I, i'm a supervisor so i only take on two cases at a time and then i uh, oversee the others but okay. very intensive where we're meeting with this family two to five times a week for 120 days so i mean oh, you're wow. really really get you're really getting to know this family you're really getting to know these clients and so you really get to see the change and that's a really right. cool part when i was doing traditional one-on-one therapy i had like 100 some clients and see one every two weeks or one every once a month. And there's so many people, man, that I'd have to make notes. And I just never felt that connection, which was me not doing my job. And I felt like it was hard. So having that like frequent tight, close communication, um, you know, it's just, it just changed how I do it. And it, it's just played a really different role. For sure. And I bet you grow with them, right? You're not Definitely. like, you're not, you're not just watching it. You're growing with them and you're actually, you know, that kind of intensive work is, uh, you know, you can see that you can see that change and you can be a big, like an actual part of that change, right? Yeah, and what's played a huge role, and especially like that men's challenging violence, I've always thought I was a very open dude and, and good with this stuff, but the more you go through it and learn like, hey, you know what, I actually still do some of that, or I was still doing some of these negative things, and same with you, yeah. my, my wife's 30 as well, mm-hmm. and I'm in, I'm in my 40s, and I'm also trying to keep up, but I think <laughs> the, one of the really strong suits for us is that communication is not a problem in our relationship, and, and that comes from me being a therapist, you know? Right. We talk about openly about anything. And that's why uh, we, you know, we've remained so tight for so long. She's my best friend. Like you said, I feel like she's the coolest thing on the planet, right? Like, yeah, amazing. And I support her everything she does. And a lot of that's because we have this really cool, open, open communication where we can talk about anything. Yeah, uh, no, I can completely relate to that. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. I mean, like, it's, it's a whole like your, your, your work affects everything in your life. And, and that's definitely that's, that's real meaningful, meaningful work. And, uh, to, to have something like that, that you can see, you can put into play in your own, in your own world and actually like continue to grow as a person. That's, that'll never get old. That'll never feel like work. No. And yeah, I'm never like, Oh, I got to work tomorrow outside of, I don't like waking up early, but you know what I mean? Sure. Uh, Yeah. But the other cool thing too, is I took that into the lift train ride movement with me as well. And I, I did it in the Mongols too. But um, Lift Train Ride, what we've talked about a lot as a group is how open we've all become as brothers and how, mm-hmm. you know, this group of like alpha male tough guys, but how we've created a, an environment where everyone feels comfortable expressing how they feel, their emotions. A right. lot of our guys will like straight up say, hey, I'm going through some depression right now and we'll deal with it. So we really opened the door to, to grown men talking about their feelings so that we could help and support each other. And I think that's huge. me being a, me being a therapist brought that to the net, you know, that to the group, which kind of brought our brotherhood to a different level for sure. A hundred percent. And that's what we all need. And that's what we all, I mean, that's what us as men struggle the, the most with, oh, right? Sure. And especially a certain type of man. I mean, yeah. Imagine, imagine someone saying, Hey, there's a group of bikers, outlaw bikers sitting around talking about their feelings. No one's going to believe right. it. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. But we do it, man. And, and it was a, it was a challenge at first in some ways, right. Just getting people to open up and do it. But once people yeah. saw that it was respected and helpful and 
and how everyone treated it, man, I think we talk, we talk about our feelings all the time, you know? And, and yeah. even if it's something as simple as, hey, man, the, the, the way you addressed me, I don't, you know, made me feel like this. And, you know, instead of, hey, F, you don't talk to me like that, we'll have a more sure. adult, rational conversation. And it brings us closer together as men, man. And, and, and you know, which is a more respectful level. And that's how we really get to know each other. Yeah, 100%. That's been a huge aspect. I think that career I, or, you know, my schooling, what I do, it's, it's influenced, positively influenced everything that I do. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Have you... Um... So in your work, have you had any issues? Like, so for me, I, I think like if um, coming from, you know, I've, I've been in residential treatment, I've been, you know, through a whole, the whole gamut of, of different treatment centers, different treatment protocols and that sort of thing for, you know, drug and alcohol recovery. Um, something that, and, and now today, like, I, you know, I run, I run, run like a, I don't run it. Like I, facilitate uh, like a, a Buddhist recovery group. And, you know, I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one work uh, with alcoholics and addicts that are struggling. I do a lot of um, like I go into the jails and prisons and talk to the guys in there. That's right. And yeah, you know, and I found that, um, you know, the, the biggest thing for me going through that stuff, I didn't ever want to listen to somebody who's learned it out of, out of a book and not lived it. Right. And so, um, I think going into some of the places where you have to go to, you know, to, to have these meetings or access these people or whatever, you know, if you look a certain way, if you've, you know, they've, they know you've been through it, they know, you know, you have lived a life. Um, I feel like the, the, the message is received in a different way. And it's, it's an instant bond and instant trust. Like almost like this person is, is I, I, uh, he's one of us. Yeah. No, I, and, I've definitely and, taken it as a strength or used it as a strength. Um, yeah. You know, with therapy, there's that fine line where you're right. A lot of people say, I don't want to listen to you if you haven't been there. But on the flip side, the therapy is about the client, not about me. So I'm never supposed to say, I understand I've been there. No one needs, no mm. one should ever know my story. Right. I know it's, it's different in, in um, drug and alcohol counseling, but yeah. outside of that, no one, no one should know my story. Um, so mm -hmm. having a physical appearance in a way where people can assume that I've been through there, yeah. <laughs> it's super, yeah. it's super helpful. And listen, you know, you can tell who's been through it or not. Right. So right. when they start talking about it and the way I react. So, yeah, I, I definitely think it's a huge strength taking what I learned coming up and at very least using it as empathy, but more than anything, use it as a point of understanding. Like even if you and I went through the exact same thing, it might have it affected us differently. So it doesn't it doesn't matter if we've done it or not. Or like right now, I'm working with parents and I don't have kids. Sure. But but the 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 science behind it, you know, shows you let, this is what's working. Um, right. So just, I think it's it's really taking what you've learned and it's how you present it. And I think okay. guys like us have the uh, strength in that side of it, or at least in what we're talking about, that we can present right. it in a way where more people are going to listen. Mm hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I know that for sure um, in my even in my line of work with, with the fire department, like, you know, we go to a lot of calls. We're going to a lot of medical calls and that sort of thing. And we're, we're in a lot of, you know, dope houses, crack houses and stuff. And these are places that I used to frequent. And now I'm going in as a first responder. And, um, you know, and I could talk I could talk to an addict. I'm wearing a uniform and they see a uniform, but I'm talking his language. And that's the biggest thing in, in, in all relationships is to meet the other person where they're at. The benefit yeah. is, is, you know, where they're at. Yeah, 100 percent. I think it's a, a lived experience is, is worth so much, um, whether the person knows it or not, if they can feel it. 
right? No, and you know what? That's something I talk about a lot. In fact, me and our wife, we don't do gifts like on holidays or stuff because we do so much for each other as far as experience. We try and go on trips or travel together or do things together. Um, and I was just talking to one of the, my homies about this is that to me, I mean, I'm a social worker. Like I said, I didn't do this to make money, but the experience, I think life's all about experiences and, and yeah. experience so much. And I'm so grateful, but I'd rather have that in the bank than cash. Because of this, sure. we can sit here and talk about like you, you're talking about Thailand. I've been to Thailand. I bet we have a ton of cool stuff we could talk about or, you know, sure. our, our upbringings or, or, or whatever, just all these cool different things. You know, that's what's always connected me to other people. And it's really brought me joy as, you know, experiences um, more than anything else. Yeah, that's the stuff that that's the stuff that really matters. And like you said, I, it doesn't matter the dollar value that's in your bank. It's it's, you know, what's in your bank of experience and, you know. What are you going to, what can you take with you? What are the stories you can you take with you and keep with you the whole, you know, the rest of your life? You can't right. keep the money. It's going to go, right? right? So We don't love to have more, yeah. right? but that's the thing. So, I mean, it's one of those things where there's there's never enough. Um, I will say on the flip side, you know, it's normally rich people that say money can't buy you happiness. Um, sure. for, for anyone that's been poor, you know, it's probably a lot of us, money stress is a real thing and it's terrible and it's crushing um, so I never try and take that lightly, but I would say if you can find the balance, you know, like right now I get paid enough where I can get my bills paid and still have some fun, but then I, right. I'm also able to live life outside of work. Even like my schedule is good enough where I get to go train and I get to go on motorcycle rides and I can take vacations. And to me, that's what that balance is really all about. A hundred percent. Yeah. You make a great point. That's uh, I totally agree with you. And, and I think that's sort of, that's sort of, where I'm at right now as well with, uh, you know, with my life. And, you know, I'm super grateful to be at that point because I've been on the other end of the spectrum For where sure. I had nothing. And, you know, to be able to, you know, to be able to, to, to have experiences and share experiences with my family, um, where before, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't able to pay my bills. I wasn't able to, you know, because I was paying all my money to dealers and bars. Right. So, you know, I definitely, uh, uh, an, an appreciation for um, the ability to create and experience these these things in my life and share them with the people I love. Yeah, I think the appreciation piece is the most important because once you've seen what how bad things have been, you can really appreciate how good you have things now, right? Like 100%. you can be doing something that everyone else might say is boring and looks terrible. And to you, you're like, well, this is awesome. It's way better than it used to like, I, I save a lot. Like for I'll sure. be sitting, laying in bed, watching TV with the dogs, being kind of lazy. And people might be like, oh, he's not doing anything. Well, to me, I've been in jail with nothing. I've been away from everybody. Right. You know what I mean? I'm like, right now I'm surrounded yeah. by people I love, relaxing with no stress. This was heaven to me, you know? So it, it's 100%. having that experience and then being grateful for what you have now. Yeah, I love that, man. I love that. So to to kind of wrap things up, what's next for you? Do you think what's like kind of on the horizon for for you, man? So uh, last month I signed a book deal with a pretty good publisher, um, and so I've been working really hard on this book, and that's kind of been my oh, big focus. Wow. It's been super. It's been super cool because like the stuff we're talking about today, it's really caused me a chance to kind of relive my youth, like going like you know going back and rethinking all these different times and stuff I did. Yeah. Man, it's been it's been really really cool. It's also like our families always stay tight, and I talk to my mom every single day. But it's also increased communication with family members and old friends, and um, cool. it's been such a positive and awesome experience. So that's my biggest excitement right now. I know the publisher is really pushing to have it come out between spring and summer, so I'm pretty soon. So we're working really hard. Oh, wow! And you know, it's not one of those things I'm expecting to make money off of, but I'm hoping 
to share my story. That's the biggest thing, right? Yeah, honestly, and that's so important for people to, you know, that's and that's what that's why I do the podcast. Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm sure that's why you do your channel as well, right? To to share your story, to share other people's stories, you know, share experiences with you know with people who might be able to relate or might need to hear something. That's, and then you know, you know the cool a piece is, of hope. And, and then I'm like, I meet you, I meet new friends, I get to do cool stuff. Like all of a sudden, now we have connections where if I'm in your area, you're and I, we're gonna hang out, we're gonna do stuff together, right? And to me, that's the rewarding takeaway is making new connections, positive connections, you know, people with similar interests. And so, you know, having a book come out like that, imagine the amount of people are going to say, hey, man, I've done something similar. Or, hey, that's a lot in common. And I'm that guy, yep. that, um, you know, I don't have a huge social media following, but enough where it keeps me busy. And I, I reply mm -hmm. to everyone that messages me because of that. I, I would want to be like that, too. Right. If I if I showed some vulnerability and reached out to a stranger, I would want them yeah. to reply back. So, you know, I, I've made it a point to do that so that, you know, I spend a lot of time with that. And then, I, like you said, I started a YouTube channel. I'm not 100% sure where I'm going with it, but my, my okay. I, I guess my goal for it always was I want to tell my story through, through this channel. And then mm -hmm. I do want to interview people, but the people I interview are someone that was somehow affected, you know, connected to one of my stories. So, like, I spoke with right. Mike from Lift Train Ride. I did a, a, a one with our old singer to my old band. Um, and I'd like yeah. to do some with people who we've crossed paths along the road or whatever. Um, but it's still right. going to be tied to my story. Um, and that's why I don't do it every week or anything. So I'm just trying to, like, you know, I have a cool story to tell. Instead of just mm -hmm. me telling it, I'd like to bring someone else in and hear their perspective and how, you know. For sure. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm doing. I've done some of the motorcycle like protocol stuff. And I think that's fun yep. and I enjoy it. But my real vision for it is more telling my story and the people that have, you know, are the, the people I've met along the way in that story. Yeah, I really like that, too. And to hear because you have your idea of the way the stories went. You have your story, but it's really cool to hear somebody else's version of that story that was there next to you. Right. Because definitely, it, you know, sometimes it's different. <laughs> I honestly my initial goal is for my twin brother to do the podcast with me. Um, because oh, yeah. for that exact reason, man, you, you have no idea how often we fight about that's not what happened. This is what happened. Like, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and we just have, um, you know, our friends always say we have a really funny dynamic where we're usually talking shit to each other and laughing. And, um, I think it'd be super entertaining and a lot of fun, uh, where he is in life right now. I just don't think he's ready for it. He's working a ton. He owns his own business. He's a dad. He's just, uh, doesn't have the yeah. time yet, but I, I hope at some point we can align on that because that's, that's my biggest goal with my podcast and me and my, or my channel or whatever is me and my brother telling stories of our youth, his version, versus yeah. my version. I think that would be awesome. I think that would be very cool. Yeah, man. Well, that's awesome. I mean, the book thing sounds super exciting. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely grab a copy of that because I'm, I'm super excited for you. Thanks. You know, I think that's awesome. And, um, you know, I think, I think to, to sign a deal like that, it's, it's super exciting and gives you, you know, you've got deadlines and, and, you know, you can actually put your, put your head down and get to work on it. And it's been um, fun, you know, the other part too yeah. on that is, you know, I used to kind of be against guys from motorcycle clubs that wrote a, a book because to me, they were kind of profiting off the club. But the, the cool thing about me, and I'm not saying it just because it's me doing it, but the, the club to me was just part of my story, right? Like yep. this isn't a book about my time on the Mongols. Um, you know, like we talked about on this podcast, I, I've done so many cool different things that, that my story of my life yeah. is, is a bunch of different things put together. So um, I'm, I'm really happy and excited doing it this way. Plus the way, you know, I'm going to keep things positive and frame things the way I always do. And obviously it's mm -hmm. not going to be all positive because that's life, right? But I'm not right. using it as a way to um, 
talk inner workings of the club or badmouth people or anything like that. Like for sure. I really want to do this in a way to influence others in a more positive way, just like we're doing yeah. train ride, just like we're doing on podcasts like this. I just want to share mm-hmm. that message of, um, you know, remaining positive and, and just being good to each other. Yeah, man. Well, I love that. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I'm really excited for the future for you. And, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit down and chat with you. It's been a pleasure to get to know you over the last six, eight months, however long it's been. Um, you know, I, again, I look forward to seeing what's next for you. And, you know, we'll take a ride out to uh, to Illinois yeah. uh, sometime when the weather gets nice. Sweet. But uh, my wife and I will definitely ride out and, and check you out there. But, um, you know, I... Before we go, did you want to um, drop your your social media handles and um, where people can find you on YouTube? I mean, I'll put it in the show notes, but for sure, um, yeah, my uh, yeah. Instagram is just um, OG underscore Mooch, or I think it's two underscores OG underscore underscore Mooch, um, and then my YouTube is the Mooch six one eight. So if you guys can follow, you know, subscribe, follow, check me out. Like I said, hit me up with any questions you got, anything you want to talk about. If don't, you know, I. I get hit up all the time. People say, oh, I don't know if you can answer this. I'll just tell you if I can or not. I'm not going to be rude about it. So, you know, hit yeah. me up, ask a question. But, um, yeah, definitely keep me a follow and support. I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. And that's something I'll say about you. You know, like you have always been, you know, you answer every message right away. It's always something positive. You know, it's no bullshit. And, you know, you just – you, I just really love – you know, kind of the vibe that, that you've got going now, you know, and, and the positive, the positive energy and the momentum moving forward. And, you know, again, I just really want to thank you for coming on and chatting with us and, uh, you know, all the best in the future. And, you know, thanks again. Thanks so much, man. Hey, if you enjoyed today's episode and want to learn more about Mooch's story, visit www.dartfrogbooks.com forward slash Mooch. That'll get you on the mailing list for his book drop and anything else coming up.